So thanks a lot, kids. We sure do appreciate it. Um, related to that, uh, I want to give you an update on our, where our study serve signups are. Um, there are still some, some needs. We're actually, we've done really well with our signups this year for the serve positions for the next six months. But if you have not signed up yet, there are still some urgent needs, especially in our children's ministry. There are three classes of our kids, and I think they may all be the next hour, so this would fall on you all, uh, without any teachers. Um, Classes without teachers get canceled. So we, we really don't believe that it's good stewardship of what God would have us do here to cancel our children's classes. So that means a number of you, about six of you, need to earnestly pray about leading those classes. There are seven more classes that only have one teacher. Uh, We require two teachers in each class for adequate ratios and for uh, just safety purposes. So there are a number of opportunities for assistance to help alongside teachers who have already made those commitments. So in the lobby, there's a large... um, board on an easel out there with these opportunities posted. I do hope that you'll check that out. If you've not yet signed up, um, God is speaking to you about this matter, okay? I trust that you'll um, be obedient or suffer the consequences. So, uh, we should pray as we open up the word and also about these needs that remain. So, bow with me, would you please? Father, um, my family has been so blessed by what my kids have gained from this church, uh, from the mentorship of countless teachers who have invested in them. And um, I know as a teacher that the greater blessing um, falls upon the teacher. And so I pray that um, in this gathering of your church at North Wake, you would raise up the necessary teachers this week so that the classes can begin on schedule next week with trained teachers in place. Um, And Father, I I pray that there would be no resistance to your prompting, that glad service would be offered that pleases you. And Lord, too, now as your word comes and presses on us to make us more like your son, uh, give us glad, cooperative, obedient, eager hearts. We ask this for Christ's sake and in his name. Amen. I think it would be, if, you were, if you're fairly new to Northwake, it's probably, what I'm about to share with you is probably hard for you to imagine. But in the first 10 years or so of our church's life, Northwake's 20 plus years old now, uh, we were on kind of a non-existent blacklist at the seminary. Um, though Northwake would often be mentioned in classes there, it was rarely complimentary. Um, Honestly, they just didn't know exactly what to do with us. We did not fit in the typical uh, Baptist box very well. It it was not so much an act of rebelliousness on our part as the fact that uh, we had a pastor Uh, in the early years, who had never set foot in a Baptist church before this one. He did not know an RA from a GA, okay? So it just took kind of an unusual 
uh, shape as a result of that. And precious few brave souls would enroll uh, that were enrolled at the seminary would attend here. There were a few, like Rob Craig and Jeff Doyle, when they were students, were brave enough to attend North Wake. Um, but they were very few. Very, very few students uh, would dare to darken our door back in the day. But then a few rogue professors who shall remain nameless, um, who didn't even remotely resemble the shape of any box that any WMU director had ever even imagined, began to attend North Wake, and the floodgates opened up, and now uh, throw a rock in the congregation, you will likely hit a student. We now have literally hundreds of students and families attending North Wake um, that are involved at, at the seminary. And you can pick them out. Uh, they, they often will be carrying a Bible in some other language, some ancient language. And, and when they talk about God, they use really big words, multi-syllabic words to talk about God. Okay. Um, the question, I, one of the questions I was thinking about this morning, so what do you do about this? What do you do with all of these students who have invaded our church? What to make of them? What to do with them? Um, and I would suggest a couple of things um, about the way to think about all these students. First of all, uh, I hope you'll join me in honestly uh, thinking about all these students as a gift from God to our church. Um, I have often uh, shared with people that I am convinced that God in His mercy has skimmed off kind of the best of the students at Southeastern and allowed them to attend here. Uh, their love for God and the things of God is just this injection of vitality in our congregation for which I as a pastor and a, just an attender uh, benefit from every week. I am deeply thankful for the students that God has allowed to come here. So, first of all, what we should do with all these students is simply thank God for them. They are a great blessing to our church. And, but they are also, on the other hand, they are a trust given to us for which we have responsibilities for God, before God with respect to. Because, um, on the one hand, uh, these are often young families, singles or young families, um, just, like, just like we once were. And they have all the struggles that any young family faces. And even though they can use multisyllabic words to talk about God, they struggle to manage a budget or run a household or change their oil or a diaper. Um, and they need mentorship in these areas. They need people who have done all those things survived all those things, who will welcome them into their home and their families and love them well. I wish, I wish that every non-student family in our church had the privilege of having meaningful friendships with our student families. Um, the, the blessings that flow both ways in those relationships are absolutely essential. 
But when we think about them as a trust given to us that we're responsible for them, not only to love them well and mentor them in, the matter, in matters of life that they are facing as young, uh, many young families and, and singles, uh, we also have a responsibility to pray for them, to pray for the students in our midst. Um, how do you pray for a seminary student? Um, that's what I'm... I want you to think with me about today. How do you pray for a seminary student? And on the one hand, you pray for them just like you pray for you and your own family. You pray, uh, you pray for their families. You pray for their pursuit of Christ. You pray for them to fight well against temptation. You pray for them the same things you pray for your own families. But on the other hand, there are some other more specific concerns that we may not pray differently for them about, but we may pray especially for them about. If I was going to put it in a single phrase, how do you pray for a seminary student? I would say, pray that they don't waste their life. Pray that they don't waste their life. And that sounds really odd. You're thinking, but they're in seminary. They're preparing to be a pastor or perhaps to be a missionary. How could they possibly waste their life? And that... That's what the Apostle Paul helps us see in chapter, the back end of chapter 3 of the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, beginning in verse 10, Paul says this. He says, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, a wise, skillful builder. And someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Paul planted the church in Corinth. He laid a foundation. Others now are building on it. And what Paul is doing here, he's bringing a word of warning to those who would build on the foundation he has laid. He says, there is only one foundation, Christ and Him crucified. The good news, the gospel. He said, that is the only foundation that the church can be built on. Any other foundation, Paul is saying, you don't have the church. You have something else. Here's a couple of examples of some something else's that are masquerading in our day as churches. This is a quote from the Unity Church. Unity teaches that the cross symbolizes the crossing out of all false beliefs. Here again, emphasis on life and living through the resurrection rather than on the crucifixion. I think the Apostle Paul would say, that's not the right foundation. That's not the church, not the church of Jesus Christ. Here's another one. This is from Christian Science. Um, his disciples believed Jesus to be dead while he was hidden in the sepulcher where he was alive. One sacrifice, however great, is insufficient to pay the debt of sin. The atonement requires constant self-immolation on the sinner's part. That God's wrath should be vented upon his beloved son is divinely unnatural. Such a theory is man-made. Um, 
Paul would simply say, wrong foundation. This is not the teaching of Christ crucified that I brought to you, Corinthians. This would be the wrong foundation. This is not Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Therefore, this is not the church. In the church, it is all based on, depends upon, is built upon, springs up from, hinges on, flows from, focuses on, is consistent with, exalts. I think you get the idea, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's all we have. It's all we are. The good news, the precious good news of the love of God poured out in his son. That's why Paul said, you remember back in chapter 2, he says, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's all we have. That's what makes us the church. But interestingly enough, Paul's concern in Corinth is not that they were building on a wrong foundation. He laid the foundation. His concern was what they were building and what they were building with upon that foundation. That's why he is urging them such great caution when he says in the verses we just read, he says, no one can lay any foundation other than the one that's already laid, but each one should be careful how he builds. Be careful, Paul is saying. Be very careful about how you build on this foundation. He continues on and says, If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he'll receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. So Paul says there are kind of two categories of materials that you can use to build on the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've got gold, silver, and costly stones in one category, and another category is wood, hay, and straw. And a lot of thought has been given to what these categories mean. A lot of ink has been spilled. Um, Read a lot of ink this week on these things. You know, some, you'll notice that some are cheap materials and some are costly materials. Some have noted that there's a descending order of quality in, in this list. But the main point Paul's making is that one group of these materials is perishable and the other is imperishable. The one will burn up in fire and the other will not. And he says there is coming a day, the day, when those differences will be revealed by the judgment of God. The Old Testament referred to this day as the day of the Lord. Um, Little tiny book from the prophet of Obadiah. Obadiah says the day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return on your own head. Another prophet, another one of those, as the children sang, mad prophets. Um, Zephaniah 
paints a, a more vivid picture. The great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. Listen, the cry on the day of the Lord will be bitter. The shouting of the warrior there. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. On that day, this is the day Paul's talking about, he says there's either going to be reward based on the work you've done with respect to the church, building the church, or there's going to be loss. What kind of reward comes to those who build with good, costly, imperishable materials? Well, the exact, it's interesting in the Bible, there's a, there's a lot of conversation about rewards, but it's not always clear what those rewards look like. And I can't help but think that that's intentional. The reward itself is not always clear, but the clarity seems to come more on who it is that's doing the rewarding. And the rewarder is none other than God himself. God is going to bring the reward. And so when Paul thinks about the reward, the significant thing is that it's God doing the rewarding. You pick this up um, in another chapter. We'll get to it in chapter 4. Paul says in verse 5, Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motive of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. That the reward Paul has in mind centers around a reward, a praise from God. So that seems to be what Paul has in mind, that this comes from God as, as praise is first and foremost. It's probably not the whole that could be said on the matter, but it seems to be the center of what could be said on the matter, that God is our rewarder and that his praise should matter greatly to us. On the other hand, if there is no reward that waits for us, the idea would be that of shameful loss, of standing before the same God and seeing our life's work literally go up in smoke. of a life wasted. So what determines the outcome? Will it be reward or will it be loss? And again, in verses 12 through 15, we see that it's about the materials that you use to build with. Paul says the church is like a building and it's the materials you use that determine whether or not you will one day experience God's reward upon your life's work, or you'll experience great loss, and it'll all go up in smoke. Um, Paul says, you want to build with imperishable materials, gold, silver, and precious stones. And what he has in mind there, again, thinking to that 1 Corinthians 4 verse we read, that has a lot to do with our motives, has a lot to do with our hearts. And so, I would say, based on what he's saying here in 1 Corinthians, he has at the forefront of his mind, he is urging a Christ-exalting, church-unifying humility in what you do in service to the church 
that is determinative in whether or not you experience God's reward or God's loss or a great loss on that day. That kind of Christ-exalting, church-unifying humility would look like this. Christ is happily and supremely exalted by everything you do and teach. The leader who buys into this is self-limiting. He is not after personal gain or reputation. He's like John the Baptist who said, He must increase, Christ must increase, I must decrease. And as a result of that, this leader will share leadership. The leadership will be unified because they're focused together on Christ, not on that leader and his vision. He deploys his gifts for sure, but they are for the good of the church, not for his reputation. Um, Obedience to Christ will matter supremely. Worship of Christ will, will matter greatly. He will be greatly concerned about offering acceptable worship to God, which means offering our best to God. And it is this kind of Christ-exalting, church-unifying humility that enables us to offer our best to God. Back in Leviticus, it's interesting. It's talking about what kind of worship God desires from His people. Don't bring anything with a defect, it says, because it will not be accepted on your behalf. When anyone brings from the herd or flock a fellowship offering to the Lord to fulfill a special vow or as a free will offering, it must be without defect or blemish or it won't be acceptable. You have to bring your best. And it is humility, as we'll see in a minute, that enables you to offer your best, not to you, but to God. So a life that will be rewarded, that builds with these kinds of imperishable materials, is a life that's marked by Christ-exalting, church-unifying humility. What does he mean by perishable materials? Wood, hay, and straw? He means a man-exalting, often a me-exalting, church-dividing pride. Those are perishable materials. What would that look like? I would happily be exalted. I'm glad when I get the credit, when I get the glory. I want the spotlight. The church is built on my personality, my gifts, my charisma, my vision, my leadership, my reputation. Leadership is not shared. It's competitive, even quarrelsome. There are turf wars. Strategies, schemes, tools, approaches, philosophies are what matter most, especially if they're mine, if I advance them. And churches can fuel this stuff. I ran across what was to me a shocking statement uh, in a sermon by a pastor in the Northwest, Mark Driscoll, pastors a large congregation in these He's an author, so he's well-known. He said, talking about when you you become somewhat um, famous, or in his case, infamous as a pastor, um, people, you can command pretty good money, he said. He said, churches call with signing bonuses for pastors. 
He says, churches have said to him, he says, like an athlete, we'll give you a $250,000 signing bonus plus your salary plus moving expenses if you'll come and be our pastor. And just to put your mind at ease, North Wake does not offer signing bonuses. Um, this can fuel the tragic exaltation of the leader as celebrity, which fuels pride, which leads to a wasted life. It's possible. It's too possible. It may even be common that you can give your life to building the church and have it all go up in smoke because of your pride. Because pride will not allow us to offer our best to God because our, our best is offered for me. Our best is already spoken for. Uh, last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, had some really uh, provocative words to say about this. Somewhere in here. Maybe I didn't get it in my list. Looks like I left it off. I'll read them to you. It says, when you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. See, pride will not let us offer our best to anyone but me. It's possible. It's all too possible. It might even be common for someone there to give their life to building a church and have it all go up in smoke. Pray for our students that they don't waste their life and build the kingdom of me and not the kingdom of Christ. Pray that our students, many of whom are in training to build and lead the churches, churches all around the world, literally, will not waste their lives due to self-exalting, church-dividing pride. Pray that they would protect the church from themselves. Um, there's a, a pastor... Um, He's a pastor. He might be a professor. He might be a professor pastor. Um, his name is Ligon Duncan. He's a pastor. That's right. And he, he's written a really helpful little thing about how to pray for your pastor. And that's 17 ways to pray for your pastor, really short one-sentence things. And he says, number eight is, pray for your pastor that he would be kept from pride and especially spiritual pride that the Lord himself would be gracious to slay pride in him and that your pastor would endeavor to always be putting pride to death by the grace of the Holy Spirit. 
pray, pray for our students that they would not waste their lives because their time in seminary, oddly enough, can be a time where pride breeds because they are good at what they do and they're learning so many things that nobody else knows. Maybe they don't care about it, but they don't know it either. And so, knowledge puffs up. Pray for our students that in humility, they would build the church with the unifying, loving humility of the crucified Christ from Philippians 2. Pray that their attitudes would be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Pray for our students that in humility they will offer their best only to God. Now, so far our application has been very narrow been thinking about how do we pray for our students that God has given to us um, who are readying themselves to serve the church in leadership. And so I'd like to just broaden that a little bit and say I hope you'll pray these for our leaders, for our pastors and our elders, and that especially you would pray them for me. Um, This is such a huge temptation to be given truth and then be arrogant about it. Um, So I hope you'll pray these for us. But I wonder if it could be widened even more. What about you? Could these verses, these great warnings that Paul is sounding, could they apply to you, even if you're not a pastor or an elder or in training to become one in in seminary or, or the like? One of the commentaries that I worked through this week was by a fellow named Craig Blomberg, and he says, given that all believers are potentially leaders in some small fear of ministry and that all ultimately contribute in one way or another to the growth or stagnation of the church, it seems far too restrictive to limit the judgment of these verses to only select groups of Christians. In fact, he's saying this, this could apply to you. This does apply to you because it's possible. It's it's too possible. It may even be common for people who sit where you sit and serve where you serve to see it all go up in smoke on that day. That you could sign up for study serve until the cows come home and And you'll stand before God in shame one day if the motive of your heart is about the kingdom of me and not the kingdom of God. See, you will stand there on that day too. It's not just leaders that are going to stand there. Everyone's going to stand there. And you're going to be subject to the same fiery test. What will it yield for you? What materials have you used to build the church of which you are a part? 
Will you get reward or will it go up in smoke? Will there be shameful loss on that day? Will your service at North Lake go up in smoke? What about your career? What about your life's work even outside of, of this, these four walls where you represent the church in your work? Work not offered to God as worship. Who is it offered to? And what do you think will happen to it on that day? All those days you worked for someone's glory other than God's. There's a whole lot of days that are going to go up in smoke, I'm afraid. Now, at this point in time, there's a temptation in reading this to think, what's the big deal about Paul? Um, Why such huge uh, threats about, about the church of all things. Um, it can seem odd to us that, that such all-encompassing judgments should be made about how you engage the church. After all, it's just an hour on Sunday, right? How could I screw that up? Um, and the church looks pretty well built, good foundation, good materials, we're good. Orange acoustic panels and everything. Paul anticipates this kind of thinking, I think. And in the next couple of verses, he addresses it. In verse 16, he says, Don't you know that you yourselves, you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? So it's not just any building that we're building, what Paul's talking about here, it's a temple. And it's not just any temple, it's the temple where the Spirit of God dwells. And he's not talking about the, the building we're in, he's talking about the building we are. He's not talking about your body as the temple of the Holy Spirit, he'll do that later. He's talking about us together. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are where the Spirit of God dwells, in us. You know, as I understand it, in, in Corinth, it was a city, as we're going to see as we move on into the further chapters, this is a city renowned for its idolatry. And you could walk down the streets and see the temple of this God and the temple of that God and just the city was full of them. Um, but if you if you came in looking for the temple to the Christian God, there wasn't one. Not brick and mortar temple. If you wanted to see the temple for the Christian God, it was this church, the church in Corinth. It was the people. They were the temple. If you wanted to see God and know what he's like, you looked at those people. Now, we live in a country where you drive down Capitol Boulevard and you see temples. Temple to Mercedes. Temple to Toyota. You can head up towards D.C. You can see the Ikea temple.
There's a Buddhist temple here in Wake Forest. There's a Hindu one in Raleigh. But if you want to, if you want to see the temple of the Christian God, where would you look? Paul said, you look right here. We're the temple. If someone comes to Wake Forest and they want to know where they can encounter the Christian God, where they can see what he's like, Paul would say, go to the church in Wake Forest, of which one part is the church at North Wake. Go to North Wake. Watch how they worship. Watch how they love. Watch how they forgive. Watch how they share. Watch how they weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Watch them. See them together and you'll see the Christian God. His spirit indwells them. Look at their families. Look at their marriages. See how they love one another. And because of that reality, Paul says one of the strongest um, statements that I that I can recall in the scriptures. He says in the next verse, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. It's sacred. It's holy. It is, it is set apart to reveal the glory of God to the nations. Don't mess with the church, Paul says. Don't destroy it or God will destroy you. And the tendency is, is to want to kind of micromanage this and say, well, destroy, what does that mean? What does it mean to destroy the church? What exactly is he talking about? What could that be? But think about it this way. If a husband says to you, don't mess with my bride or I'm going to take you out. You don't have to know exactly what he had in mind when he says, don't mess with my bride. You don't have to know precisely what he had in mind. And you don't have to know the precise meaning of take you out. You get the idea. Now, if this groom happens to be a mixed martial arts expert or an active duty special forces guy, I'm good. I know what I need to know. Don't mess with the guy's bride. He's going to take you out. So the almighty God, creator and sustainer, of all that is, has spoken to you and me. And he said, don't mess with my bride or I will take you out. See, God's temple is sacred. We are that temple. The Spirit dwells in us. The only place for the world to look, for Wake Forest to look and see God in this way, it's us. 
Don't mess with us. D.A. Carson um, is a commentator on these matters, and he was helpful in thinking about this. He says, the ways of destroying the church are many and colorful. Raw factionalism will do it. Rank heresy will do it. Taking your eyes off the cross and letting other more peripheral matters dominate the agenda will do it, admittedly more slowly than frank heresy, but just as effectively in the long haul. Building the church with superficial conversions and wonderful programs that rarely bring people into a deepening knowledge of the living God will do it. Entertaining people to death but never fostering the beauty of holiness or the centrality of self-crucifying love will build an assembly of religious people, but it will destroy the church of the living God. Gossip, prayerlessness, bitterness, sustained biblical illiteracy, self-promotion, materialism, all of these things and many more can destroy a church. And to do so, he says, is dangerous. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. It is a fearful thing, he says, to fall into the hands of the living God. Don't destroy the church. Don't mess with the church. Don't destroy the temple of the Spirit of God in Wake Forest. It's us, okay? Love the church. Serve the church. Build the church. Protect the church. Strengthen the church. Be the church. But don't miss Paul's strongest of warnings here. Do not destroy the church or God will destroy you. It's the very temple of the Spirit of God, the church is. He goes on in, in the closing verses, and uh, we don't have time to, to explore them fully, but he warns us about self-deception. He tells us the foolishness of boasting in men. We have so much more in Christ. I'll let you read those verses on your own later. But I do hope that after today, you know what to do with all these seminary students we have in our midst. Pray for them. Pray. Pray that they would not waste their life by their pride. Pray that because of their Christ-like humility, their reward will be great. Jesus said in uh, Matthew chapter 25, he said, the master replied, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Pray that our students will one day know fully. Pray that our leaders will one day know fully. Pray that you will one day know fully the happiness of the master. I think that that's right at the heart of our greatest reward. Would you bow in prayer with me?
Father, great, we, greatly blessed we are with so many um, whom you have prompted and prodded to serve your church and leadership. And now they are here at great cost and great sacrifice, um, training, readying. And while their minds are made full, God, I pray that their hearts would be humble. that they would give themselves fully to the exaltation of Christ and give no thought to their own reputation. Um, Their own bank accounts, their own status. Um, But with a Christ-exalting, church-unifying humility, they might one day know the reward of the Master's happiness on their life and ministry. And, uh, Lord, I pray that for us all. We look forward to those words on that day. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.